So I'm, I'm going to go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are so thankful for your love to us. God, we thank you for all of your goodness and your power. Lord, you truly are wonderful and marvelous and awesome. And we've gathered in this place to give you glory and honor, which is due your name. And to humbly submit our lives to you, O God, in obedience to your commandments and to your Son, Jesus, our Lord. And we do thank you for his shed blood, which has reconciled us unto you. God, we thank you for all that you're doing in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, even transforming us and making us like you. God, we're thankful. We're thankful for all that you give us. Lord, we don't want to raise a word of complaint, but Lord, simply thanksgiving. We um, thank you for the privilege that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word and worship you. We ask, O God, that you would continue this freedom that we have unto our children's grandchildren and even beyond. Lord, have mercy on us. We thank you so much for all that you have given us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay. Uh, Let's see. Just real quick, uh, as we get started, uh, next week I'm going to have a few jobs that I need some folks to help with in the class, and if uh, if you could just sign up, um, that would be good. Would somebody be willing to bring um, snacks or donuts or muffins or something fattening for next week? <laughs> Charity? Okay, Charity's going to do that for next week, and then uh, next week we'll have somebody volunteer to be the sign-up person. <clears throat> And make sure that everybody brings something every week, and then that way there's always refreshments when you come to the class. By the way, if you're bringing refreshments, please be sure to be here before 9 o'clock. Because we, we try to start the teaching right at 9.10, and uh, so it gives people about 10 or 15 minutes to fellowship and say hello and hug a neck and, and have a donut. So, uh, uh, But we'll, we'll be talking more about that stuff next week. And um, there'll be just a couple of other uh, couple of other things. We uh, in the class we like to have a fellowship twice a year, and so we're gonna have uh, somebody uh, plan that for us and uh, that kind of thing. And uh, so just looking forward to all that the Lord has for us, aren't you? Yes. All right. So with that, I'm gonna go ahead and. Does anybody have any questions before I get started about what we're... Uh, uh, I, I'm going to pick up in the book of Ephesians where we left off. Basically, last year, the class goes from September through May. And last year, we covered four chapters in the book of Ephesians. And so I'm going to pick right up where we left off, which really is right in the first part of Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, basically... The next probably six weeks will be about holy living, which is the text from Ephesians 5.1 through 5.20. And um, starting uh, right after that, there's, I'm going to do a series on marriage and the family, which really the whole rest of the uh, text of Ephesians from 5.21 uh, through like 6.14 uh, or, or 6.11 uh, is about marriage and family and, and even relationships in the workplace. 
And so I'm going to go into some detail uh, on marriage. And so although it is going to be an expository study on marriage from the book of Ephesians, I'm going to include quite a few other things. And I'm going to have some real challenges for you. And if you if you're married, you're not going to want to miss this because, um, you know, just over the years, I've gotten together a lot of good material. And, and I think I can really uh, show you how powerful God's word can be in your marriage. And so um, just want to encourage you to come to that. And, and uh, again, it's probably going to be about five to six weeks before we get there. But uh, um, looking forward to that. Any questions before we get started? Maxine. Can I just um, have everyone overlook this uh, information? I know we have a couple address changes. If you're not on the list, if you don't mind adding your name and address and birth dates to the list. Yeah, and if you intend to keep coming to the class, please put your name and your information on this list if it's not there already. Okay? <coughs> By the way, if your email address isn't on there, would you please put it? Or if it's wrong, would you correct it? Because I try to keep everybody in an email group also just for communication. Okay? So do it over on the side. Okay. So this is our ongoing study of Ephesians. And I just want to remind you that um, there's a microphone here that picks up your comments pretty well, too. And so uh, uh, we encourage interaction, comments, questions. Just raise your hand and and, uh, feel free to have some input. Uh, What I wanted to do before we we start back into chapter 5 of Ephesians was give you a pretty good review of the book of Ephesians because it's really important to get these things in their context and uh, what's really being said. So I've got some um, a way to go through this here. Of course, the book of Ephesians was written by Paul the Apostle. And uh, this is one of uh, uh, Paul's favorite letters by many Christians. Ephesians is six chapters long, and it's a very powerful book. Um, The purpose and theme of Ephesians. Ephesians was not written primarily to correct some doctrinal error or heresy, but rather to reveal many great truths concerning salvation and God's eternal purpose for the church. Many profound and spiritual realities are spoken of with clarity and conviction. So, you know, Paul's not writing like many, many letters in the New Testament are written to correct various heresies that were affecting the church or attacking the gospel. And, and so he would write and he would correct that. Uh, also, Paul would write like, for instance, the, uh, the books of Corinthians are very corrective. Uh, he's writing to a church that's full of problems. And he's specifically addressing those problems in there, giving them doctrinal correction. Well, here in Ephesians, he's not really doing that. Although there is a, the the last half of the book is very practical and deals with our behavior, uh, what he's really doing is, is he's, he's talking about the nature of being a Christian. He's talking about the nature of being a member of God's household. 
He's talking about the very nature of salvation. What is it? Where did it come from? How did it start? What are the benefits that it affords to you? What is it that God is doing in salvation? How does that affect you as an individual? How does that affect the body of Christ as a corporate body? And, and then, after he goes through this big long discussion about the nature of the faith, the latter half of the book is devoted to teaching us then what ought to be the results of that in our life. What, what should it look like when it's fleshed out? What sh- how should our life change if indeed we've come to Christ in repentance and faith and we've become members of the family of God and we've been saved and born again and chosen of God and sealed by the Holy Spirit? What should be the outcome of our life then? How should it change? What should it practically look like? Okay? And, and so if you will, the book is broken into two parts. And I made you a little chart there that just kind of simply describes it. Uh, the first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, is doctrinal in nature, dealing with positional reality. The second half of the book, chapters 4 through 6, is primarily instructional, dealing with the practice of the faith. Chapters 1 through 3 teach us of our riches in Christ. Chapters 4 through 6 teach us how to use them. Okay? So when we talk about chapters 1 through 3, we say that's our position in Christ. And so when we say positional reality, that's what we're saying. These are the things that are afforded to the believer. This is what, how God sees you. This is what has happened to you in the spiritual realm. Okay? The, the, uh, the chapters 1 through 3 give us an understanding of what the faith is, what the kingdom of God is, what salvation is, how it happened, where it came from, what God is doing with it. And then chapters 4 through 6 is what we call our practical reality or our practice. How should it change our practice? How should it change our behavior? What does it flesh out like in our life? That's what chapters 4 through 6 is about. Okay? And so chapters 1 through 3 is doctrine. It's teaching. It's knowledge. It's understanding about the nature of salvation. Chapters 4 through 6 then is our duty. It's our duty in regard, now that we've been saved, we have obligations to God. We have a duty before our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. Okay? And so chapters 4 through 6, he gets very specific and very practical about how our life should be lived, how we ought to live, how we ought to walk, what we ought to say, what should we be like as people who've been saved by the grace of God. And then again, chapters 1 through 3 talk about the riches that we've been afforded in Christ. And then chapters 4 through 6 are responsibilities. Because we have all of these riches, we now have responsibilities. Okay? And so, uh, if you will, that's kind of an overview of of the book and just kind of breaking it in half. And and really, quite frankly, the the break is very easy to see in chapter 4, verse 1, is right where it changes. And, you know, before chapter 4, verse 1, there's not a single imperative commandment, not one. As soon as you hit chapter 4, verse 1, he starts telling you what you have to do, what you must do, and what you must no longer do. And he starts giving you these imperatives and saying, this is what you have to do. These are your responsibilities. This is your duty. You see that very clearly in chapter 4, verse 1. 
And then I just wanted to tell you a little bit about some of the themes that are present in Ephesians. And, of course, you may remember this from last year. We went through this stuff in, in very comprehensive detail. Uh, there's, there's three major themes in the book. And the first one is what we call riches or what God keeps calling riches in the book. And there, there are five places in the book of Ephesians where he's talking about the riches that we possess in Christ. And uh, the things that he goes through and describes are just simply hard to imagine that, that we really have been afforded all of these things. And so the scripture uses terms like the unfathomable riches of Christ, which are ours, or the surpassing riches of God's grace. These are terms that the book of Ephesians is using to talk about the things that are now ours. They are now our possession. It's not something that we hope for. It's something that we currently possess in Christ if we've been born again. And so uh, there's this theme running throughout the book of the riches of God's grace. The riches, it says in Ephesians 1, of the inheritance that we have in the saints. And... Um, this theme of riches runs throughout the book. Then also, there is the idea of being in Christ or being in Him. And the idea is that now when we come to Christ, we are placed into His body. We become a fellow member of His household. We are of Christ, in Christ, for Christ, and our lives are lived unto Christ. And so this... this uh, a uh, phrase is used in the book of Ephesians again and again, and it's the phrase in Christ or in him. Uh, like, for instance, chapter 1, verse 7 says, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it speaks of that state wherein we are if we have been born again. If we have come to Christ in repentance and through faith embraced him, and God has regenerated our souls then we have been born again and placed in this position where we are in Christ. And so it says again and again, in Him we have these things. We have redemption. We have forgiveness. We've been uh, made the elect of God. We, we uh, have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and we have incomparably great power, he says. And again and again and again, he tells us this idea of, of being in Christ. Uh, this book reveals profound mysteries concerning Christ in the church. The terms in Christ or in him are used 21 times in this book to describe our tremendous and glorious position in all that Christ has accomplished. Um, then there's this third theme, which is what we refer to as the mystery. Okay, And there are seven places in the book of Ephesians where this mystery is is spoken of, okay? And so the the mystery, it gets real specific in chapter 3 in describing what the mystery is, but this term is used again and again. It's a theme throughout the book that there is a mystery which has been kept hidden for long ages past, but now has been revealed in Christ, and that, that that mystery has come to its fulfillment now in Christ and through the church. And this is something that God had kept hidden from all the past ages of mankind. So what we're saying is everything that was B.C., uh, 
all men, all scripture, all religion, all any any kind of revelation that was before Christ did not know or understand the realities that have now come to bear upon the church of Jesus Christ and what has happened through the sacrifice of God's Son. It was a mystery that for long ages, the apostle says, has been kept hidden. Okay, And, of course, this is not just in Ephesians. There's other places in the New Testament that speak of the gospel in the same way. But the idea, then, is that now through the church... The mystery has been revealed through the preaching of the apostles and the prophets. The mystery has been revealed. What is that mystery? That God is reconciling the world unto himself in Christ, in his son. And in so doing, he's bringing many sons to glory. And he's giving an elect people a position in heaven, in eternity, with him in his presence forever and ever, world without end. And that in that place, there is all of the benefits of salvation that God gives in Christ. Which is namely, that in Christ, you possess everything there is. That's literally what the scripture says. You have become an heir. A joint heir with Christ. And let me tell you, Christ owns everything. It's all his. And we have become sons of God in Christ Jesus. We are the heirs of God. This is what the Bible says about Christians, and this is why we call it riches. And, you know, the other thing about riches that we find in the book of Ephesians is that these aren't earthly riches. You see, Jesus said, the things that are highly esteemed by men are detestable in the sight of God. You see, God paves streets with gold. That's where his saints walk. That's something that's very common in the kingdom of God. Okay? Because the riches that God affords to us are something far greater than gold or silver or any other created thing. You know why? Because in Christ, God himself is our possession. Now talk about something to be possessed. How about the maker of all things? How about we now have been afforded relationship with the holy God, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the one who spoke and everything that can be named came into existence. We've come to possess God himself, even his son, Jesus Christ. The riches that we have indeed are unfathomable. And the book of Ephesians opens them up for us to see what they are. In speaking of the realities of what the Father has granted us in Christ, the supernatural world is opened and revealed to our understanding as we are presented with one glorious blessing after another that we have already received. We are further enlightened to the angelic conflict and how it interrelates to God's purpose in the church. Okay? Ephesians also talks about what's going on in the heavenly realms. Okay? And there is a section of the book that will deal with spiritual warfare. And, and in this, we, are get, we get a picture opened up into the angelic conflict which is taking place in heaven. And, and that there is a war taking place in the spiritual uh, uh, authorities and principalities and powers. 
and, and that what is happening in the church is directly uh, uh, related to what is happening with these principalities and these powers. And if you will, open your Bible to Ephesians if you haven't already and look with me at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. And, and you'll get a little glimpse of what we're talking about here. When we talk about the angelic conflict and what's happening <clears throat> in the heavenly realms, in the heavenly places, God in the church, God has a purpose in the church. Here in chapter 3, verse 10, it says, So that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places, and that this was in accordance with the eternal purpose which He carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, God's put the church on display for all the angels to see, both holy and fallen. And the church, if you will, is, uh, is a manifestation of God's justice and His power and His great mercy and love before His holy angels and all of the fallen angels who rebelled against Him. And now through the church, God's manifold wisdom is being made known. These are profound spiritual realities, and this is what we're saying. The supernatural world is opened up. The windows are opened up. The mystery's been revealed. And now we get a glimpse in to see what is really taking place in the creation. Pretty profound, huh? It's amazing to consider. The book also gives clear and precise instruction on practical Christianity. Who we are in Christ, how we are to live, act, think, and speak as Christians is given in simple instruction. The marriage, family, children, and servants' relationships are addressed. It further gives a revealing look at spiritual warfare and how it is played out in our daily Christian life. If you'll turn over just real quick to chapter 6, starting, I think it's, yeah, verse 10 and following there. You get the whole concept there of the armor of God. How many of you have heard of the armor of God, right? the shield of faith and the breastplate of righteousness and the sword of the Spirit and the belt of truth, right? All of that comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following. And if you will, Paul opens up that window a little bit more and he says, here's how you use these resources you've been given. He says they're like armor for the Christian and you need to put them on because God's working His eternal purpose through you, the church. Okay, and he says right there, our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Right? Verse 12. But against the rulers and against the powers and against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. And so Paul opens up that window and lets us see into the supernatural realm. And he says, your struggle is against demonic forces and demonic powers that are in heaven, which are exceedingly powerful. But you've been afforded these riches in Christ, whereby you can overcome in that struggle. Amen? Of course, this kind of a theme is throughout the entire Bible. But here Paul is giving us some very specific instruction about it in the book of Ephesians. Okay, and you see, because he's not trying to correct any doctrinal error that's going on, he's got this opportunity to just kind of ramble about all these glorious mysteries of the faith. Okay? And that's what makes Ephesians so rich. Paul just has an opportunity to just go on and tell you about all the glorious 
blessings and riches that we have in Christ. Uh, in chapter 1, if you look at chapter 1, I'll, I'll give you a glimpse at that. If you look at verse 3, all the way through verse 12, that entire paragraph there is all one sentence in the Greek. He never stops to take a breath or even put a period. He's just going on saying, these are all of the wonderful benefits we've been afforded in Christ. And he, he's just, it's this one big doxology of praise, thanking God for all of these things that we possess in Christ. And, and that's what's so rich about the book of Ephesians. He's just going on telling us all that God has done for us in Christ. So it's, it's a very exciting and life-changing passage of Scripture. Uh, you know, once you get a handle on Ephesians and you've gone through this book in comprehensive detail, you will never be the same as a Christian. This, this book is exceedingly powerful to change your thinking process, to change your worldview, to cause you to think and to understand how the world is made, why the world is made, what is it for, what is God doing, why am I here, why do I struggle, why am I struggling with this sin? What happened when God saved me? What is it that He's working in my life, in my family, in my marriage? Right? All of those questions are answered right here in this book. And it has a tremendous power in order to change us and to make us like Christ and to help us to understand what Christian life is all about. Okay? So, if you will, that's kind of an overview of the book. And just go with me to chapter 1. And uh, on the back side of your handout there, I just want you to go through and kind of see the things that the book is talking about. And if, if, you're, if you're here and you haven't studied the book before and you intend to keep coming uh, and you weren't here last year, please go back and read this book and, and read it five or six or eight or seven or 12 or 14 times, okay? Because uh, it's a very profound place in Scripture, and it's really something that you need to understand as a Christian. And if you would like uh, the handouts from my class before, I have detailed commentary and notes that we went through in our teaching for the first four chapters, and I'd be happy to give them to you. Just let me know after the class, and, and I'll get them for you. Um, <clears throat> but starting in chapter 1, he, he really is talking in that whole chapter about God and about his work in salvation. <laughs> And so he goes on describing what that is. And for like an, an example, in verse 3, he says that we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And in verse 4, that he chose us in Christ. Verse 5, that he predestined us and adopted us as his sons in love. And then in verse 6, that he freely bestowed his grace on us. And verse 7, that he redeemed us and forgave us all our sins. In chapter 1, verse 8, that He lavished His grace on us. And in verse 9, that He made known the mystery of His will to us. And verse 10, that He summed up all things in Christ. Verse 11 is one of the most profound scriptures in all of the Bible. There, um, Ephesians 1.11 says, Also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His own will. And there you have the idea of God's providence laid out, saying that God is working everything after His own purpose. 
That everything that happens, God is working those things after the counsel of his own will. By his own wisdom, he's working everything that happens in the world. Statement about God's providence. Verse 13 and 14, he talks about us being sealed with the Holy Spirit and that that's a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Verses 15 through 19, Paul is praying for the church that we'll have revelation and understanding of the great riches and power that we possess in Christ. You know, Paul's going through and he's telling us all these things and he says, wait a minute, these people can't do this on their own. And so he stops and he prays and he says, Oh God, open the eyes of their heart so that they can see and know and understand how profound these realities are. He goes on and and, uh, verses 20 through 23, he speaks about the exaltation of Christ and Christ's sovereignty. There he says that... um, uh, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And, you know, it's just like every verse is just packed with this, with this profound understanding of salvation and of Christ. In chapter 2, he's talking about salvation very specifically. And in verses 1 through 10, he's talking about salvation as it applies to each individual person. And then in... Uh, Uh, verses 11 through 22, he's talking about how that salvation has affected the corporate body of the church. Okay? And so that in verses 1 through 3, he talks about our former state there in chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. And look what he says. He says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. And so there he talks about what we were like before our salvation. What was that former state? Well, we were walking after the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan, the devil. And in so doing, we were, he says, uh, we were living in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. He says that's what it was like for us. But then in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, look what he says. But God, right? We were wretched sinners. We were children of the wrath of God, plunged into sin and darkness. And living and walking after it. Right? It was our very desires, he says. But then he goes on. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so here the scripture talks about this salvation. And he goes on. So profound, he says. And raised us up with him. And seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that 
In the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And so he just tells us, look at this love that God has lavished on us. And that for ages to come, he's going to express his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Even, he says, the surpassing riches of the grace of God. It's just uh, amazing to even consider what that must be. And that for ages, I was when we were teaching through this, I was telling you about the Greek words. The, the Greek word there is, is eons for ages, right? Well, here it's, it's, it's the word eonion, which means plural ages. And so the, the, the concept is just forever and ever and ever and ever, God is going to express the riches of his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. And that God is so exceedingly rich that it will take all of the ages of eternity for him to reveal all of the riches that we possess in him. He's infinite. Tell me, in the depths of the storehouses of the treasure of God, when do you hit the bottom? Amen? It's a glorious reality. It's beyond our comprehension. That's what he says in chapter 3. He calls them the unfathomable riches of Christ. You see, these are ours if we're in Christ. Don't let the devil rob you any longer of what you possess. It's already yours. And this is why Paul is praying that we'll understand this. Because we live so far short of it, don't we? Amen? So God, help us to learn what he's instructing. God, help us to have ears to, eat, to hear what he's saying to the church. This is for you, Christian. It is specifically written for you. Open up your Bible. Look at what the words have to say. Ponder them. Meditate on them. Let these things live inside your heart. Let this word of Christ dwell richly inside you. Let it live in your mind. Let it change your thinking process so that you view your world as it is in truth, the way God made it and how it is in reality. You see, we're the children of the light. God has given us the light. He's turned on the lights so now we can see. Now we know why we were made. Now we know what the world is for. Now we know why the world is going to hell in a handbasket. We understand all those things now. The mystery's been revealed. The light has been turned on. Now he says, live as children of light. Amen? Okie doke. Verses 11 through 22 of chapter 2. He's talking about how that salvation affects the body of Christ corporately. Okay, and, and you know that the body of Christ is made up of two kinds of people in the book of Ephesians. That is Jew and Gentile. Okay, Because salvation came to the Jews first through Christ Jesus in Jerusalem. Okay? And, and that even the, all of the apostles are Jewish. Okay? They are the disciples that Jesus taught them how to uh, spread the faith. And he gave them a divine method for doing that. Okay, but all of those people were Jewish. And, and when that church began, that Jewish church, uh, it began to spread through various means. And, of course, the Apostle Paul was the chief means of, the, of um, 
salvation spreading to the Gentiles, okay? Because he was uniquely called by God to go and to bear his name before the Gentiles. And so you, so you come up with Paul's missionary journeys and Paul being out preaching to the Gentile church and, and, and basically calling all of the Gentile world who formerly, remember, were far off from God. Remember that in chapter 2? Um, and... and um, and how the Gentiles were far off. They were away from God. They were out of God's presence. But now the mystery is that God has made the Gentiles and the Jews one body together in Christ. And he's broken down the wall of hostility. You remember how we talked about the temple and how it had the Gentile court and there was a wall built all the way around the temple? And you remember that the Gentiles could not enter into the temple of God? And that under the system of Judaism, they did not have access into that place where God dwelled in his temple. But Paul tells them in the book of Ephesians that now through Christ, the Gentiles have literally themselves become the dwelling of God. And that he he says in uh, chapter 2, follow with me there. Look at uh, verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Okay, that's the far away, that's the Gentiles. The near, that's the Jews. Right? For through him we both, both Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then, look what he says, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Paul tells the church, you're the place where God lives. You are the place where God lives. The corporate body of Christ is the dwelling of God on the earth. And that's what the prophet meant when he says, God does not dwell in temples made by hands. God doesn't need us to build him a place so he can dwell. Listen, God built a place to dwell. It's the soul of mankind. And God gives it life with his breath. Amen? And so then, chapter 3, Paul goes into a discussion about the mystery. That theme that we talked about of the mystery. And he talks about the mystery being revealed. And um, in the first few verses there, chapters 1 through 13, he's talking specifically about that mystery, and and he talks a little bit about himself. You see, uh, Paul wrote this letter, Ephesians, when he was under house arrest in Rome. And he was literally in chains when he wrote this. And that's why he makes statements like in chapter 3, verse 1, he he says, uh, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. Right? He he's calls himself the prisoner of Christ Jesus. Another place he calls himself the prisoner of the Lord. Okay, Paul's in chains when he's writing this letter. And he's telling the church what they possess, of course. Of course, he's been hauled off to Rome and he's going to stand before Caesar and, and ultimately um, lose his life. But he, um, he here is, is uh, exhorting the church and he's telling them, look, God gave me this, this revelation. He revealed this mystery to me and he charged me as a herald to go out and tell everybody about it. 
Okay. And um, so he says that this mystery has been revealed. And if you will, look with me at chapter 3, verse 6. There he says, to be specific about that mystery, he says, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? He says specifically that's what the mystery is. That now God is not just confined to a Jewish system with a Jewish temple in Jewish Israel. But that now he has sent his word out into all the world whereby men can be saved by repentance and faith in Christ Jesus. And that in so doing, we become the very temple of God where he comes to live inside the soul of man. And you see, that's the mystery that was kept hidden for long ages past. There was no gospel message like that before because there was no cross to trust in. There was no shed blood to redeem mankind. Okay? And so we didn't have the gospel message. People in the Old Testament looked forward to what the Messiah would do and what he would bring. And they placed their trust in that Messiah uh, uh, with a vague and dim revelation of who he was. Okay? But we in the church don't do that. We have a very comprehensive understanding of who Christ is and what he has done. And we look back at who he is and what he's done. And we come now to understand it and approach him in repentance and faith and receive all of the blessings that he affords. Okay? That is the mystery that has been revealed. And then in the latter half of chapter 3, verses 14 through 21, Paul's prayer for the church to grasp and know the love of God. Okay? And and here's how he kind of ends his doctrinal discourse of chapters 1 through 3 of Ephesians. And it's just one of the most profound scriptures in all of the Bible. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. And so, if you will, that's kind of how Paul sums up his doctrinal discourse in Ephesians. Okay, And then he shifts gears. He gets in chapter 4, and uh, the, the entire focus of this discussion changes from those riches that you possess and, and um, that position that you have in Christ. And the discussion changes now to what are your responsibilities and what is your duty and how should it affect you practically. Okay? So then in chapter 4, verse 1, he begins a discussion about what we ought to do in response to these things. And, um, you know, the first thing he says is, look, you're all one unified body, so you need to act like it. You need to live like it. And, and he does that by telling us, if you will, 
you know, he says, uh, therefore I, again, the prisoner of the Lord, he says, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. You see, up to this point, Paul hasn't asked us to do one thing. He hasn't made any nice suggestions about what things ought to be like or what we ought to do. But as soon as he gets to chapter 4, look what he says. He says, I implore you to live a certain way. Okay? And, of course, the word implore is, is a strong word. Right? He says, I'm, I'm, I'm not only commanding you, I'm urging you with everything that's in me. Right? That you live in this way, that you walk in this manner. Right? And look what he tells us to do. He says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Now those are Christian words. Amen? Those speak of the attitude that is in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself in the form of a servant, And being found in human likeness, humbled himself and became obedient to death on a cross. You understand? The King of glory, the Lord, the Master who created the world with a spoken word, came to the earth and humbled himself as a servant and allowed men to punish and kill him. Right? There you see the humility and the gentleness of Christ with patience showing tolerance for one another in love. You see that? And he goes on, you know, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And look what he says. He says you're all one body. You know why? He says because you have uh, one body and one spirit and you were called to one hope of your calling and you have one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. You see, there's this oneness in Christianity. We all have become possessors of the same thing in Christ and there's no partiality with Him. Every one of us has become an heir of the inheritance that is in Christ. And it's not because of anything that we've done. It's not because one is a better Christian than the other. Or or one has less sins in their life than the other. On the contrary. Right? It's because Christ has merited perfect, uh, in His perfect obedience and submission to the Father, has merited for us perfect favor with God. And we are now in Him. We've been afforded all of these blessings because of what Christ has done. Not, it's not based on our own works. It's not based on our own merit. And that's why he told us in chapter 2, he said, By grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves, he says. It is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest no man should boast. And so we all come in humble submission and receive the same blessing from the Master's hand. And that makes us one family. It makes us one body because we have one Lord. We all have one word to obey. Right? We all have one truth. There's no difference. No Jew or Gentile. No race. No color. Red and yellow, black and white. They're all precious in His sight. Right? Amen? Amen. And so we're one body in Christ. In Adam, we all die. In Christ, we all live. 
Amen? And so then he's going to get even more specific. In um, verses 7 through 11, he talks about God's gifts to the individual and to the corporate body. Okay, so like for instance in chapter 4, verse 11, he says, God gave to the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. These were gifts of God's grace to the church. And then he says in verse 12 and following that he has a purpose with that. And that purpose is the maturity of the body. God gave these <coughs> gifts to the church. And, and not only the apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor, teacher, but if you look at verse 7, he says, But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, and we've all been empowered. We've all been gifted in the body. And we all have a place to fill. Okay, and he goes on and describes what that is and how we, the corporate body, are maturing and growing together. And he talks about uh, this in in verses uh, 12 through 16. And there he says that those gifts that uh, he has given to the body are for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Okay? He's saying, look, we have these gifts so that we'll be equipped for the work of the service or the work of the ministry in another translation. You see, we all have the work of the ministry that belongs to us, the saints. And that's what the pastor teacher and the prophet and the evangelist and the apostle are equipping us for. They're giving us the tools that we need to do that work of the ministry. And when we employ that work of the ministry, what happens is, he says right there, to the building up of the body of Christ. When we all do that work of the ministry with that measure of grace and that gifting that God has given us, the body is built up. Okay, but look what he says. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. He says we are going to grow up into Christ. And that's what ought to be happening among us. Right? Of course, he's going to go on for three more chapters. He's going to tell us what that looks like. Right? But here he's kind of giving us an overview of that purpose. In verse 14, he says, As a result... We'll no longer be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the craftiness and deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ. You see what he's saying? We're to grow up. We've got to grow up and become who we are. We, can't, we can no longer be infants tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. You know, every new fad that blows through the church, every new form of teaching that comes down the pipe and everybody hops on the bandwagon. He says, we're not to be like that. We're not to be like infants tossed here and there. Instead, we're to grow up into Him. This is our goal as a corporate body. How does it happen? As the saints are equipped for the work of the ministry and then the saints go out and do the work of the ministry. What is that? Well, it's namely discipleship. It's namely all of us using our gifts to provoke one another toward love and good deed and to provoke one another to grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And every one of you has been uniquely gifted in the body of Christ to fulfill some part of that and, and cause that to happen. And look what he says in verse 16. From whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You see what he's saying? He's saying every single one of us has got a proper working and an appropriate part that we must fulfill. And as each one of us does that, the body grows and builds itself up in love. You see that? Now, do you see what a practical, comprehensive discourse that is on how the body of Christ grows together and how the gifts of the Spirit are used by God to cause the body to grow? you see how practical that is? It's profound. You know, God's given us everything we need to become like Christ and to grow up into the full measure under the stature of Christ. Amen? So we got to be focused on that. we got to be fixed on it. we got to be looking for that, that ministry that God's given us. And then we got to do it with all of His power that He gives us. Remember, we're the ones who have that incomparably great power for those of us who believe. We have all of these riches that have been afforded to us. We have all the resources in the world that we need to do what God's called us to do and to be who God's called us to be. Amen? He continues then in chapter 4, verses 17 through 32. He is talking very specifically about the old man and the new man. And he's gonna, and here's where he starts saying, don't do this and don't do that. And do do this and do do that. And he starts telling us very specifically, right? So like in verse 17 and following, he says, he says, I affirm, uh, so I say this and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk. And then he describes what that's like. In the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. They have become calloused, having given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. He says, you must no longer walk like those Gentiles. Their life is full of wickedness. Their hearts are full of wickedness. Their mind is ignorant, he says. Their heart is hard. They're calloused. They love sin and they pursue it with everything that is in them. But look what he says in verse 20. But you did not learn Christ that way. Right? That's not how you learn Christ Jesus. No, he says. If indeed you have heard of him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You see, he says, we're, we're a new people. We're not like those old Gentiles we used to be before we came to Christ. We used to love sin and we used to pursue it with all of our heart. But now we love Christ and we pursue him with all of our heart. So we put the old man off. We put the old self off. We put the life of self and sin on the cross and it gets crucified with Christ. And now 
We think and we live like God. We're renewed in the spirit of our mind, which is what? In accordance with uh, God's righteousness and holiness of the truth. We've been fashioned in the likeness of God. And the Bible says, if any man is in Christ, he is a a new creation. The old things have passed away. The new things have come. We can no longer live like we used to live. We've been changed. Amen? And so here and following, he's going to get very specific about what that is. And really, the turning point is at chapter 4, verse 25. And he starts literally nitpicking our whole life to pieces. Okay? And it's a really good thing because we need to be nitpicked. I don't know about you, but i got all kinds of things in my life (laughs) that need to be picked out so that I can see them, so that I can put them to death, right? Like, for instance, he says, laying aside all falsehood, you should speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, right? And he he goes through from chapter 4, verse 25, through chapter 5, verse 20, making these contrasts. Okay, And he says, here's the wicked thing, here's the evil thing of the old self, and here's the good, righteous, holy thing of the new self. So put this aside and do this, he says. Okay, That's in verses 25 and following of chapter 4. He says, um, lay aside falsehood right, and speak the truth. He says, um, <clears throat> let him who steal, verse 28, steal no longer, but let him work performing with his own hands so that he will have something to share with those in need, right? And so he says, stop stealing and start sharing, right? Stop lying and start telling the truth. He says in verse uh, 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only that which builds up and edifies, right? And then he starts in this whole contrast. And do not grieve the Spirit of God, he says, right? Right? He says um, in verse uh, 5, chapter 2, uh, verse, chapter 5, verse 2, he says, Instead, be a pleasing sacrifice and offering to God a fragrant aroma. Don't grieve the Spirit of God, but make it something that's very pleasing to Him. Right? And so he tells us, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. And instead, he says, Put on the new man. He says, be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And then he says, look, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. He says, be just like God. Live a life of love. Put off all that destructive behavior. Put off all that destructive speech. Don't even let a single unwholesome word come out of your mouth, he says. Instead, he says, walk in love and speak blessing, that which edifies. Live a life that's not full of clamor and anger and bitterness. He says, instead, be kind, be tender-hearted, be loving, be forgiving, be gentle, humble yourself. Keep that bond of peace that we have, that unity of the Spirit, by being gentle and humble and kind and loving. We're the children of God. Amen? We don't destroy. We build up. We strengthen. We edify. We love. We encourage. And we die to do it. Amen? Amen. So then, 
that's an overview, if you will, of Ephesians chapters 1 through 4. And uh, that, that brings us uh, to where we are in chapter 5. And uh, what I want to do is just give you an overview of what chapter 5 is like itself. And I, I found this um, really fitting little uh, description of Ephesians chapter 5. I want to read it to you. It says, Christians should imitate their heavenly Father and walk in love after the example of Christ, verses 1 and 2. They should avoid all uncleanness, impurity, covetousness, and foolish jesting and idolatry because these things exclude from the kingdom of God, verses 3 through 7. The Ephesians were once in darkness, But being now light in the Lord, they are exhorted to walk in that light and bring forth the fruits of the Spirit and to have no fellowship with the workers of iniquity whose evil deeds are manifested by the light. Verses 8 through 13. All are exhorted to awake, to walk circumspectly, to redeem the time and to learn what the will of the Lord is. Verses 14 through 17. The Apostle gives particular directions relative to avoiding the excess of wine, to singing and giving thanks, verse 19 and 20, to submission to one another, verse 21, to husbands that they should love their wives as Christ loved the church, for by the marriage union, the union between Christ and the church is pointed out, and wives are exhorted to reverence their husbands, verses 22 through 33. If you will, that's kind of a fitting little description or an overview of chapter 5. And um, with that, I want you to look with me at chapter 5, verses 3 and following. Last, last year when we, when we uh, knocked off uh, at the, the last class, we actually went through chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which says there, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children... And walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God and a fragrant aroma. Now, you'll have this handout right here. And uh, this is what you'll get each week if you come to the class. And we're going to go verse by verse through the, through the rest of this book, and we're going to take every single verse apart, and we're going to understand what it is. We're going to understand what it says. We're going to look at the Greek. We're going to understand what the words mean. We're going to try to grasp exactly what the Spirit of God is saying to us, the church, and how this ought to impact our life. Okay? And so, if you will, uh, starting in verse 3 and, and following, there it says, Now remember, in this little section of Scripture, Paul is drawing these contrasts. Remember I told you, he says, he says Don't lie, but speak the truth. And he says, Don't steal, but share, right? And he says, don't have bitterness and anger and clamor, but he says, instead, be kind and loving to one another, forgiving one another, right? He keeps drawing these contrasts. Well, he's not done with that. Uh, There's a contrast uh, that's drawn in uh, chapter 5, verses uh, 3 and 4. And there he says, Do not let immorality or impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. 
You see, Paul gets real personal here. He starts talking about the way we live. He starts talking about the things that we do. He starts talking about the things that we say with our mouth. And he gives us very specific instructions about things we should do and things we shouldn't do. And things we should say and things we shouldn't say. Okay? This is imperative for God's people. This is imperative for God's people. Why? Because you are on display. You are on display to the entire world. You are on display to every angel in heaven and every angel in hell. Your life is a display of God's great love and His mercy. And the scripture says, Ephesians 3.10, His manifold wisdom is being made known through your life. Okay? Not to mention the great debt that we owe to the Master, having given His life for our sins. We're like a, we're like a slave, the lowest form of a slave, who was bought out of their slavery and has now been set free. Do you not owe your very life to the one who paid the debt? You do. And it's infinitely more profound than that when we discuss sin and judgment and righteousness and what Christ has really done. He saved us from the eternal fires of hell. Amen? You owe Him your life. Right? The Bible says... You've been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Now honor God with your body. Amen? He says, for you are not your own. Whose are you? Christ. You belong to Him. He paid the redemption price. Amen? And we couldn't have a more benevolent master, could we? We couldn't have a more loving and kind, gracious Father who has set every spiritual blessing in heavenly places to rest in our laps. Even giving us His own Son in marriage, in heaven forever, world without end. No more dying, no more crying, no more pain. The old order of things will pass away. Amen? In the meantime, we need to put on Christ because we're on display. Amen? And so he's going to get real practical. And um, a couple of things I want you to see. That, that word immorality there. Some people say, I, I've, had, I've heard the kids, my kids have been talking to me lately. My daughter Jessica did a Bible study on uh, premarital sex. And um, we were asking the question, where does the Bible say that young people shouldn't have premarital sex? And, and so I was telling my daughter that, that that commandment is really in this word here, immorality. Okay, that's the word porneia. And it's uh, the, the, uh, the best English translation of that word is a word we don't use much anymore. It's called fornication. Okay? But that word basically encompasses every kind of sexual sin that there is. So when we say that premarital sex is sin... We need to be able to define that biblically, right? 
So what we've done then is we've gone through the Bible. Actually, she did this on her own, went through the Bible and found every occurrence in the Bible where God commands one thing or the other about sexual sin. And in the finding of all of those commandments, made it very clear to her how um, God has defined our practice in regard to sexual relations. And um, we're going to get real specific about that. And we're going to kind of define some of these terms and talk about it. And uh, we're not going to pull any punches here. I'm going to talk about some things that are really affecting us in the church. I'm going to talk about pornography. I'm going to talk about... Uh, different things that we use uh, in our lives as Christians that impact our lives, magazines, television, this kinds of thing. I, I want you to come, and I want you to be involved in this discussion. And um, I want to equip you. You know, the devil is not playing games. He wants to destroy your life. He wants to destroy your marriage. He wants to do everything he can to keep you from glorifying God in your practice and in your behavior. And I want to shine the light on his deeds of darkness. And I want you to clearly see what's going on in our culture and how he's striving to deceive the church. Okay? So uh, we're going to be talking about those things and looking about uh, defining what these biblical words are and even looking at the Greek and what they mean and and so on and so forth. So uh, that's kind of a, a peek into next week. Does anybody have any questions or comments? Okay? Let's, let's go ahead and pray. God, our Father, Lord, we are filled with gladness, Lord, at the thought of all that you have given us in Christ. Lord, it is just glorious and immense. And I pray that you would open the eyes of our heart, God, that we would see and know and understand your surpassing love. Father, that we would grasp uh, all that you have given us in Christ and that we would understand, Lord, the very severe nature of, 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 of the consequences of sin. And God, I pray that you would encourage each one of us, Lord, to just continue to press on and to keep growing up into Christ. And, and Father, I pray for peace in our marriages. God, that you would teach us how to take up our cross and to love one another with the love wherewith you have loved us. God, I pray that you would change us and make us like you. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged as we look into the Word each week here. I pray that you would radically transform our lives. Give us ears to hear, O Father, and eyes to see. We ask it in the name of Jesus Christ and for His sake. Amen.